News. 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 New York City. F-A-Q. Welcome to FAQ NYC. I'm executive producer Alex Brooklyn, and boy, what a show we have for you today. FAQ and Racket Media present this episode about the Queens District Attorney race. We even have a bunch of them here. Ah, Queens, home of the Mets, the World's Fair, the Medicaid mills in Elmhurst, the mental hospitals in Jamaica, Oasis Bagels on Horace Harding, the night markets, the food, the people, what a place. This episode is all about a packed race for Queens District Attorney. The election is coming up on June 25th. We've got FAQ reporter and co-producer for this episode, Emma Whitford, interviewing David Brand from the Queen's Daily Eagle, a paper that started about a year ago and actually has a print edition. What? Yes, print. Dope. They talk all about the candidates and why we care about this race. Then, we managed to get five of the seven candidates to show up at a VFW in Astoria, Queens, to talk it out with hosts Harry Siegel, Professor Christina Greer, and, guess who, original FAQ co-founder Ozzy Pabra, now with the New York Times. We have Councilman Rory Lansman, Rory Lansman, who works for criminal justice reform on city council. Longtime Judge Greg Lasak, Lasak, who everyone thought was going to just get given the job and arguably the most experienced. DSA candidate and AOC endorsed Tiffany, Tiffany Caban, Caban, who used to be a defense attorney. Mina Malik, a Queens native known for her work at the Civilian Complaint Review Board, or CCRB. And Jose Nieves. Jose Nieves. Military vet and a guy that has gone after dirty cops and was hired to prosecute correctional officers accused of misconduct at Rikers. The two candidates that didn't show up? Queens Machine Democrat Melinda Katz and sometimes Republican Betty Lugo. Hi guys. It's an hour-long extravaganza, and if you're familiar with these candidates, I'm going to be totally honest. The first half is all of them pretty much going over their talking points, which are good to know if you've never heard them before. But for those of you politicos out there that follow this like it's a soap opera, the second half is sort of where it's at. After that, we debrief with David Brand of the Queen's Eagle, and Emma Whitford and I get to pack up and go home. Oh yeah, and local New York scribe Dave Colon came through just to hang out. So why is this Queen's DA race a big deal? Well, for a whole bunch of reasons that don't just have to do with Queen's. The country is going gaga over progressive district attorneys. Without getting too much in the weeds, it all kind of started with the late Ken Thompson in Brooklyn in 2013 and Larry Krasner in Philly in 2017. Both used the incredible amount of power that a district attorney has to try and reform the criminal justice system from the inside out. We've seen everything from easing up on cash bail to decriminalizing small-time bullshit that ruins people's records and causes mostly poor people a whole lot of trouble going through life. So the long, 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 long long-standing old Queens DA, Richard Brown, died recently. He was undefeated for something like seven terms. Considering the progressive trend, Richard Brown was a bit of a conservative, and it shows in the Queens stats. It's a big moment for Queens right now. Under Richard Brown, while the other boroughs were getting more and more progressive, or at least talking like they were, Queens was kind of business as usual. More people are arrested in Queens for low-level misdemeanors and marijuana offenses than any other borough. 
Well, at least they were in 2018. And we've got ICE agents crawling all over the court buildings. A movement to decriminalize sex work and to destigmatize drug addiction are all being played out right now in the Queen's courts. This race represents another thing as well. The possible final death of machine party politics in Queens. Well, at least that machine. To talk more in depth about the candidates is FAQ's Emma Whitford and David Brand, managing editor of the Queen's Daily Eagle. Take it away, guys. FAQ. Hi, David. Uh, thanks for taking the time to tell us a little bit about the history of the Queen's DA race, which is one month away. So if you could sort of tell us a little bit about what it's been like to cover this race from the beginning at the Queen's Daily Eagle. Well, thanks for thinking of me for this, Emma, and uh, thank you to FAQ NYC. I love the podcast, so very cool to be uh, a part of this episode, and especially on something I've been covering pretty closely for a while. Been covering this closely since uh, about August when there were first rumors that Greg Lasak was going to resign from the bench and uh, make a run for DA. Um, so tell me a little bit about how this race got started. Sure. So starting in the summertime, and I think even before that, there were rumors that Borough President Melinda Katz, Council Member Rory Lansman, and uh, at that time, Supreme, State Supreme Court Justice uh, Greg Lasak were going to be running for DA. Uh, Lasak resigned from the bench in mid-September of 2018 so that he could actually run for office and start uh, fundraising. Lansman was the first to announce his candidacy later in September, followed by Lasak and then Katz. And so those were the three kind of like heavy hitters, the people who had the most name recognition, were able to raise the most money. And at the time, it was kind of a spectrum of Lansman as the most progressive, he built himself as the Larry Krasner of Queens, trying to uh, uh, brand himself like Larry Krasner, the progressive reform DA in Philadelphia. Katz kind of in the middle, and Lasak toward the right, still always, still all running as uh, as Democrats. But the field has since expanded to include four other candidates, public defender Tiffany Caban coming in as the most progressive, as a public defender who has vowed to uh, not see cash bail, to uh, end low-level prosecution. And I think what makes her stand out is advocate for uh, sex work decriminalization. Then you have Betty Lugo, uh, attorney, former prosecutor, former Republican until November 2018, who says she'd be open to running on the Republican ticket if that's an option. And then the other two candidates, Jose Nieves, former uh, prosecutor in Brooklyn and also a former prosecutor in the state attorney general's office who prosecuted... Uh, cases involving the police and Mina Malik, former Brooklyn prosecutor and former chair, former director of the CCRB. So I think with a field that's this large and recent months, a lot of the candidates, uh, most if not all, have been positioning themselves as progressive reformers. So what has it been like for you to distinguish these candidates over the recent months? At first, with the three, I would say more like mainstream candidates, uh, the first three who announced, their positions have have shifted for sure and have been pushed further toward reform. And so it's it's interesting to see Greg Lasak and Melinda Katz brace very reform agenda, especially when you have Lasak who builds himself as the one who can really bring change to the office after serving in the DA's office and then on the bench in Queens Criminal Court for about 30 years and that he's, he's the one that can bring the most change. So, so some things that people have told me about the history of 
the DA's office and, and kind of who would be the next DA after Richard Brown finally stepped down. I think for a long time among the Queens County Democrats, the idea was that Waysack would be the heir apparent to Brown and that that was kind of the plan for many years from what a few people have told me. Brown didn't want to just resign the position and orchestrate it so that uh, Waysack could be appointed. From what I've heard, people in the, in the Queens County Democrats are a little uh, haunted by how Joe Crowley first got his position when I think Tom Manton decided not to run for Congress and then they tapped Crowley as a presumptive candidate and he won that first election. And I think people don't want to repeat that. And I think, well, I think in particular, Richard Brown didn't want to repeat that. Um, and so he hung on to the office and his goal was to retire and then let the next uh, next election run its course. Things have changed uh, in Queens and I think across the country where people are really paying attention to DA's races and especially in a place as large as Queens, one of the biggest counties in the country, really looking to someone who committed to criminal justice reform and also committed to, I think, justice reform advocacy. And that's something that comes up a lot in this race is the different candidates' positions on state law, on even on federal law when it comes to having immigration and customs enforcement agents, ICE agents in the courthouse. And Queens, uh, after Brooklyn, has the second most arrests in and around uh, courthouses in the state. And I feel like every other week I'm getting texts from public defenders uh, saying, ICE agents are on 82nd Ave right around the corner from the courthouse uh, and people sending me photos of the arrests. So it's that, that's definitely an issue. People are having to weigh in, candidates having to weigh in on things that I think in past years prosecutors often didn't have to. So as we move forward into the last month of the race, what are you going to be looking towards um, as these candidates, you know, really push to distinguish themselves for voters? Candidates have been moving further and further toward the left when it comes to reform. I'm interested in seeing if Melinda Katz will take, because I think she's a presumptive favorite still. She has the establishment support, the borough-wide name recognition, but is not so comfortable making bold pronouncements as some of the other candidates. And she's been uh, criticized by a lot of the other candidates for not sticking out those positions. And just to hear her say, see if she will move further to the left when it comes to sex work decriminalization, some people maybe didn't realize a couple of months ago that the DA was a position you could even elect. When you're thinking about why this race is such a big deal, you know, depending on who wins, how do you see things changing really substantially for the Queens residents who you guys cover? I think that's a great question. And I think Queens in particular, which has had the same DA uh, since 1991, Richard Brown, who passed away, uh, held that position for so long and ran unopposed as a Democrat for several election cycles in a row. People definitely did not realize that that was a position that you elect. And I think it can get confusing for people unless you have experience. And a lot of people do about experience in the criminal justice system or pay attention to politics. You might not pay too much attention, especially in Queens, to that position. Um, and so I think one thing that this uh, election has really achieved is to raise awareness about what exactly the prosecutor does how they have so much impact over so many people, whether that's people who are caught up in the justice system, people who live in communities, especially low-income communities of color that are disproportionately impacted by policing and by prosecutions, and then letting people know that the prosecutor, probably more than any other elected official, has such a huge uh, impact on our lives. Okay, that was great. 
Now, for your listening pleasure, ladies and gentlemen, we present hosts Harry Siegel, Christina Greer, and back as a special guest, Ozzy Pabra, and the candidates Tiffany Caban, Rory Lansman, Mina Malik, Jose Nieves, and Judge Greg Lasak, who I'm going to just let you all know had to be late, so he doesn't actually get in till pretty much the third quarter of the debate slash forum slash conversation. <laughs> This is really the first competitive election for Queens District Attorney in my life, and I'm old, and it's turned out to be one about no less than the uh, nature of the office itself and the role of the uh, public prosecutor. Four of the candidates are with us at uh, VFW Rocco Moretto, post 2348 in Astoria, uh, Tiffany Kaman, Nina Malik, Rory Lansman, and Jose Nieves. Uh, Greg Lasak um, is delayed, but will be joining us. Thank you all for coming. Um, we have one hour, so we're going to jump right in. There's no clock here, which means not every candidate is going to answer each question. Try to keep your answers brief and not to interrupt each other. Um, a question for the group, and we will start alphabetically uh, with Tiffany Caban. Um, what would the core role of the district attorney's office be on your watch, and how would that differ from what it's been under D.A. Brown? What are one or two key numbers the citizens will be able to look at if you're elected to fairly measure in a year or two if you're succeeding in that role. First of all, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, when we think about our, our district attorney's office, the core role is public safety, but we need to redefine what that means and what that looks like because uh, historically we have gone with convictions and sentences and throwing people in cages. That means we're, we're keeping the public safe. But the measurables that we will keep data on and release are, are you reducing recidivism? Are you um, decarcerating our city, keeping people out of jail, rooted in their communities with access to resources and support? And are you applying the law fairly across uh, racial and class lines? Mr. Lance? Well, I think what's necessary is a redefinition of the district attorney's office. The district attorney is the chief law enforcement official for the borough and responsible for the safety of Queens' 2.4 million residents. So what does that mean? Well, safety is not just uh, processing the cases that the police bring to the office, which is what the district attorney's office in Queens has really become. We are the carceral punitive capital of New York City, and I, I say that with some authority in the city council. I chair the committee that oversees all five district attorney's offices and the special narcotics prosecutor. And if you view your responsibility as district attorney to keep everybody safe, well, that includes preventative programs. That includes not criminalizing people for their mental illness, their addiction, their poverty. That includes um, uh, programs and, and cooperation and coordination with community organizations to address neighborhood safety problems outside the paradigm of police arrest somebody and the DA's office locks them up. Is there a measure of success for that? Sure, I'll give you, I'll give you, you asked for two measures of success, so I'll give you, I'll give you two. The first is the number zero. Zero people sitting on Rikers Island <clears throat> because they can't pay cash bail. We will not ask for cash bail in any circumstance. And the public will see that nobody is spending time in that Rikers Island hellhole because my office uh, determined they should be there because they don't have money in their pocket. Here's a second measure. The number of people who are no longer put through the criminal justice system for low-level, nonviolent offenses that give them criminal records for the rest of their life and make it hard to get a job, to get housing, 
to get an education, in some cases even to vote. You will see the number of people who are run through the criminal justice system for no reason dramatically reduced, hopefully to zero, during my tenure as district attorney. Yes, so I think that the core function of a district attorney is obviously he or she is the top law enforcement officer in a county, this particular county of over 2.4 million people. What does that mean exactly? I believe in taking a 21st century holistic approach and looking at people, not just cases. So when we think about the new approach that a district attorney should use, we should be looking at people, we should be looking at cases holistically and trying to figure out how we can make sure that this harm doesn't happen again. And in terms of metrics of success, I think we look at the rate of recidivism and make sure that it's lower, but not only the rate of recidivism and making sure that it's lower in the future, also the success rate of the individual who was once involved in the criminal justice space. And so as Deputy Attorney General, what we did at the Attorney General's office was we took part in reentry programs. We made sure that people were trained through a local university in a paralegal program, hired them after they were involved in the criminal justice system, and we made sure that we gave them a pathway of opportunity and success to ensure that they could live out their lives in a meaningful way. In fact, my executive assistant had a felony conviction of manslaughter when I was Deputy Attorney General, and we had a number of people in our restorative justice unit who also were previously um, involved in the criminal justice system and previously incarcerated. Mr. Davis. Obviously, the, the core function of the district attorney's office is public safety. Now, the question is, how do you define public safety? In my eyes, that you define public safety and how do you reduce violent crime? How do you prevent uh, recidivism? And how do you promote uh, uh, saving lives, basically? And, the, and, and that's the key uh, difference between many of the candidates here is that we have ideas, but it takes experience other than political rhetoric. So experience trumps political rhetoric in that regard because you know the system. I've been doing this for 18 years. I'm an experienced prosecutor who has seen alternative programs and diversion programs in effect and in action. Uh, as the, in the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office, we had the first Brooklyn Treatment Court. We had the largest domestic violence bureau. We had programs really for every uh, offense you can, low-level offense you can commit in the city of New York to try to divert people from the uh, criminal justice system. And I think that's where, that's where you define public safety. How many individuals have you diverted from the criminal justice system and allowed them to reintegrate in society and attacking the driver of crime? So whether the driver of crime is uh, drug addiction, mental illness, whether the driver of crime is, is uh, domestic violence and the, and the cycle of violence, that's what you have to attack, and that's what you attack with diversion programs, with alternative to incarceration programs, and that's how you promote public safety. How do you reduce recidivism? By making sure that the returning citizens who are previously incarcerated can actually reintegrate successfully in society, making sure they're connected to the services they need, as simple services as getting an ID, a checking account, a job, a license to do anything, anything from a barber to construction. These are the services they need when they're returning from incarceration, and this is how we're going to help them successfully reintegrate. So this is an office that oversees about 230 prosecutors, I think. That's five major divisions. And a lot of the talk in this election has been about reforming the office and finding alternatives to incarceration and prosecution. Um, I would like to know if there are any crimes, in your view, that, that are being 
under-prosecuted right now where, where more enforcement is necessary? We're not doing enough to investigate and prosecute human trafficking. We're not doing enough to investigate and prosecute gang activity in Queens. We're not doing enough to investigate and prosecute gun runners. And I think that's where we need to focus our resources. We don't need to distract ourselves with low-level offenses where we're jamming up the criminal court uh, with individuals who have made jump the turnstile or had you know, carried a gravity knife to work or anything like that. We need to focus on those types of, uh, you know, those types of crimes. And that's where I have my experience. As, as a district attorney in, in Brooklyn, I took down the, one of the largest uh, uh, drug rings that was headed by a third in command of the Latin Kings. And we were able to bring that, you know, institution, that illegal, you know, op operation down in Brooklyn and, and bring safety and public safety to the, to, to the Kings County. Well, I think that we spend far too much time on these low-level offenses and not enough time on things that really matter to working people, to women, to homeowners, to tenants and immigrants. So we do very little, if any, prosecution of wage theft here in Queens, which is a rampant problem, both in the construction industry, in the retail industry. My committee had a hearing on this last year about prosecutors uh, bringing wage theft cases. Queens didn't even show up because they had nothing to say. We do almost no prosecution of workplace uh, safety violations. There are people in New York City work construct in the construction industry in particular, but not exclusively, who are getting injured or killed on the job. A few weeks ago, we had three construction workers get killed on the job in New York City. Nobody's getting prosecuted for those offenses. Queens is the, the, the epicenter of the mortgage foreclosure crisis in New York. Mortgage foreclosures in Queens are still on the rise, and particularly in South Queens, no one's getting prosecuted for mortgage fraud or for deed fraud. Here we're, we're uh, taping this in Astoria, where gentrification is running rampant. I know from my own personal experience what it's like to be harassed out of a rent-stabilized apartment. It happened to me when I was a kid. No one's getting prosecuted for harassing tenants out of their apartments in Long Island City or Astoria or in Briarwood or now in, now in Jamaica. So there are whole categories of, of, of crimes and harms that are done to regular people that are not being prosecuted, no one's being held accountable for, all because our, our, our attention is so focused on locking up as many black and brown kids as possible because they've got weed or they're jumping a turnstile. Even as those arrest numbers have gone down and the present district attorney's office is arguing that there really aren't nonviolent people locked up anymore. Well, there are, well, by definition, there are half the people in Rikers Island are, are so-called nonviolent. Um, there are people who are waiting uh, trial, waiting to have their day in court. They're sitting in Rikers Island only because they don't have the money to bail themselves out. Um, but it's very important to understand that um, while we will continue to prosecute violent crime, and we will also include people who are charged with violent offenses in all of the criminal justice reforms that I'm talking about, there are whole categories of crimes and harms and offenses, economic crimes, that really matter to people's lives that are not being prosecuted. If I knocked you in the head and stole your wallet, I'm going to get charged with robbery. If I don't pay you overtime or your minimum wage that's owed to you, no one's coming for me. And that was the question, I think. What are we not prosecuting? We are not prosecuting economic crimes against regular people. Do either of you want to answer that before we move on? Yes, absolutely. Um, so 
what we are prosecuting are public health issues. We are criminalizing poverty, mental health, um, substance use, and then we aren't prosecuting the folks that are causing widespread destabilization in our communities. When we talk about what causes crime, it's destabilization. When people um, know, you know where they're going to lay their heads down at night, have access to health care and other resources, it's the best way to keep our communities safe. I represent clients who are criminalized for their substance use rather than prosecuting doctors who overprescribe opioids. We aren't doing that. Literally, represented a client who um, stole a phone to support his opioid use. He had gotten into this um, this accident, really bad accident, and broke his back, and um, started went to a doctor, prescribed opioids. The doctor then started overprescribing opioids. Then the doctor started selling those opioids to his friends. The doctor was dealing drugs to my client and his friends. So when he was arrested and we got the social worker involved and we're advocating for drug treatment, um, you know, finally our, my client said, hey, I'll cooperate in an investigation. My friends will cooperate in an investigation against this doctor. And that, that case ended up with my client serving a jail sentence, being denied drug treatment, and them never looking into this doctor who was doing a lot of harm in our communities. The same thing goes for predatory lenders that are stealing people's homes. We have the, the you know, medallion epidemic with our cab drivers. Um, those are things that wildly destabilize communities that then drive low-level nonviolent crime as well as violent crime. Um, so those are definitely the things that we need to be focusing more on employers, not just wage theft, but worksite deaths, um, all of these things that we haven't been investigating. This seems sort of new for a prosecutor, though, right? Like, like um, if you look at what a lawmaker does versus the tools that are available to your office, where you're, you're not making the laws, you have some discretion for how to enforce them. Um, is that the right place to, to work out the root causes of, of crime as opposed to the manifestations, let's say? Absolutely. So... When we talk about law enforcement, we literally, like we've all talked about here, have employers, doctors, landlords, they're breaking laws but not being prosecutor held accountable. Uh, and that's something that the DA's office should do. Again, we have to get past this culture of convictions at all costs that incentivizes going after low-hanging fruit, that incentivizes criminalizing public health issues. If we want to make our communities safe, we have to go after these bigger bad actors that are harming entire communities. So I firmly believe that we need to be prosecuting more proactively wage and tip theft, right, and protecting our workers against wage and tip theft, as well as landlord abuses. I hear there's a lot of landlord abuses going on. We must be protecting our tenants, our workers and protecting their rights as they work in the city and the county of Queens. And with respect to sexual assault, I heard a statistic yesterday, an interesting st statistic, that one in five sexual assaults are not being prosecuted in Queens County. Having come out of the Special Victims Bureau myself, I think it's important to look at that data and figure out why one in five cases are not being prosecuted in Queens County and hold folks accountable where they need to be held accountable for their actions. And that includes human trafficking as well. So for those listeners of our podcast, everyone knows I always say I like two things cities and black people, um, and I'm pretty clear about that. So Queens, my borough of birth, has a population of 22.9% African-American, uh, but blacks and Queens account for roughly 80% of arrests and incarceration. So clearly there's some rampant disparity there. So this is for all of you, and I want this to be somewhat conversational if we can, but how do you all plan to address this disparity specifically for black residents of Queens? Because thus, thus far we've talked generically about the borough, but with this particular disparity, what is your specific plan for African-Americans in Queens? Well, that's been a particular focus of my time in the council. You might have saw 
last week, two weeks ago, I had Commissioner O'Neill in the hot, hot seat at a hearing at the City Council demanding to know what is he going to do to reduce the racial disparity in marijuana arrests and prosecutions. Since the mayor introduced the new policy on marijuana policing um, over a year ago, as I predicted, uh, the disparity, racial disparity has actually gone up. 92% of the people arrested for marijuana possession in New York City are black or Latino. So what you need to do is you need to attack the problem head on. You need to not exclude from criminal justice reform people who have prior criminal justice involvement because people who have prior criminal justice involvement because we have a racist criminal justice system are more likely to be black or Latino. You need to identify the kinds of offenses that are being disproportionately and overwhelmingly um, uh, policed and prosecuted against African Americans. We um, know that over 90% of the people sitting on Rikers Island are black or Latino. <clears throat> That's why I've been one of the leaders and the only candidate in this race, frankly, who fully supports the closed Rikers plan, which includes closing that abomination called Rikers Island, but also building jails in communities close to home. Um, and it is also very, very important that the district attorney's office look like the borough of Queens. You know, I'm very proud that my council office is a majority women, is a majority people of color. If you look at the Queens district attorney's office today, particularly the leadership, it is monochromatic. And it's not how you can get to, from where we are today to where we need to be, which is a, a criminal justice system that is not racist and that um, uh, accounts for and is sensitive to all of the communities in Queens. I, I think you have to do a couple of things um, to to achieve some more equity on, on that front. Um, one is keeping data, right? Historically, our district attorney's offices have operated in this black box. We don't know how many arrests are being made for what, what the dispositions are, they're not being released to the public. Um, but really, not just keeping the data, but then bringing in outside consultants to keep track of that info, to analyze it, um, and to challenge us on what we're doing and what best practices are. And then diversity in the office. It's not enough to say that you're just going to go out and hire a diverse cross-section of the community to come and work into that office. I always talk about the fact that as a queer Latina from a low-income community, there is a reason why I became a public defender and not a prosecutor. Because when I started... Uh, but how does that help sure. black people? The because, question is black people. Yes. I think that that helps um, black folks particularly because when you look at the makeup of the office uh, in terms of the personnel, you have people making the most um, consequential decisions in people's lives, whether to charge them, whether not to charge them, um, whether to... to push back on police officers and say, hey, we're not taking these cases, we're not going to allow these practices. Um, we need folks that are intimately connected to our black communities. We need black folks in the office um, representing black communities' interests. And that comes from creating an environment in the office uh, where you know that you are doing good work for your community, not harming your community. All right, so I'll get to the hiring and staffing question once I hear from you all. So what I think is uh, my plan is to be hire a chief uh, diversity officer who's going to be a, a senior executive officer who's going to be answerable to me. And they're going to track the hiring and making sure that we hire from local schools, but also from uh, ethnic uh, um, 
clubs like the Latino uh, Law Students Association, the Black Law Students Association, recruit from these, these clubs and these organizations that are promoting diversity. Because when you have diversity in the ranks, especially in the executive ranks and the senior ranks of the district attorney's office, you have cultural sensitivity. You have cultural awareness. But it's not just that. We, the chief diversity officer is also going to reach out to organizations, grassroots community organizations that are in the tough neighborhoods like Queensbridge, like Far Rockaway, bring them into the office and have a dialogue with them. How do we reduce crime? How do we reduce violence in your community? Because it's not just about us telling the community how it's done, but also a, a, a dialogue and a partnership with the community of how we can reduce crime. How can we promote uh, you know, re-entry into the community? How can we reduce recidivism? Because when you have that type of cooperation, then you have that cultural sensitivity. Then you have that understanding of the background. And you know, I, I, I speak from experience because as a, a prosecutor for 18 years, I came from one of the most low, low in, you know, income communities in the city of New York. In the East New York, when I grew up, we were, we, were high, we were one of the highest crime areas. You know, It was the 80s and 90s during the height of the crack epidemic, and I saw a lot of violent crime in the street, and I saw the racial disparities and the discrimination in the criminal justice system because I myself was stopped by the police because of the color of my skin. So I understand for firsthand how the discri discrimination occurs in the, in the criminal justice system, and, and the results are so you know devastating to individuals of color uh, that, you know, specifically black and brown people. Mina, what about you? So being the mother to two black sons, I fully understand what it means to have certain conversations with them about police encounters on the street or whether they're driving the family car. And so as district attorney, one of the things that I plan to do is start a policy and strategic initiatives unit. And it's something similar to what I did at the Civilian Complaint Review Board as executive director. We started a policy and strategic initiatives unit, which looked at data, collected the data for all the precincts in the entire city, looked at the different offenses that police officers were being complained about, and then analyzed those offenses. So Queens needs something similar to that. We need to be looking at the cases at the intake stage and figuring out where the alleged offense is occurring, who the arrestee is, the demographics of the arrestee, the demographics of the officer, the type of offense that the person is arrested for, and then track that case, whether it's dismissed in intake or whether it goes all the way through to some sort of resolution. I think looking at that data and having a policy and strategic initiatives unit with policy analysts to analyze the data that comes through can better track incidences of recidivism, incidences of arrests of African Americans and our, our Latino community and make sure that we are tracking it well and analyzing that data so that we can influence racial disparities in the system. So there's, there are a lot of observers of this race who feel that, for some of you, your backgrounds aren't necessarily a great fit for the role of Queen's DA. And so I think a lot of people are curious as to how you will specifically, not in generic terms, specifically organize your office, and what community groups do you plan to work with to help guide this? Jose, you mentioned community groups, but there are lots in Queens who are on the ground doing this work and have been doing this work. Can you all um, give us some of the community groups that you plan to work with and also some of the priorities of the structuring of your office uh, once you get in, and even some personnel hires, if you have them in mind. I'll always speak first if you don't stop me. <laughs> so like, I don't want to be, be rude to everyone. So, Anyone want to jump in? If not, 
Well, the two organizations okay. that I'll jump in and uh, that I'll work with specifically is organizations that I have, uh, you know, met during the campaign and, and actually knew before I ran for office, and that's uh, Communities uh, United for Police Reform, um, which is a statewide organization that, that does uh, cases uh, of police misconduct in um, Queens and also outside of Queens, but also the 696 Build organization uh, and Kay Bain, who's the head of it, um, to, to reduce violence violence in high crime areas and, and areas that are plagued by, um, by, by violence, by especially gun violence, and also Fathers in the, in the Hood, uh, Fathers Alive in the Hood, um, which is also an organization that promotes not just a reduction of violence, but also promotes the reinter- successful reintegration of individuals coming from incarceration into our community and making sure they have a second chance at life. Because I think when we really get serious about reducing recidivism, that's where we have to focus, is trying to get individuals who have been incarcerated back into the community. And this is something that touches home with me because I have family who were incarcerated. And those individuals, you know, my family, when they came out of prison, they were not given opportunity. They were not given the resources they need to get back into uh, a life, a successful goal in life, and a successful career. Um, they were basically marginalized and created a, a you know, they were put in an outcast system, an underclass of society. And because of that, they've never recovered, you know. And I see, you know, the ramifications, the humanity that, you know, the human element of our failures. Councilman? Hmm? Yeah. So, you know, one of the advantages of being an elected official, um, a council member for five years, and before that, an assembly member for six, is I have the opportunity to work with organizations and people throughout Queens, um, both generally, but in particular on criminal justice issues. I think one of the uh, community organizations, if you will, that people ignore um, is that is incredibly important to work with is the clergy, particularly in South Queens. And I'm very, very proud to have been endorsed by very many clergy members in South Queens. Um, barely a church, a Sunday goes by that I'm not um, speaking at a church, and not just now that I'm running for district attorney, um, but have been. There used to be a very strong relationship between the district attorney's office and clergy that does not exist anymore, and we're going to reanimate that and restore that. But in addition to that, there are many organizations. When was that? Say it again. When, when was that that there was the strong relationship? Oh, there used to be something called a second chance program, which was very, very connected to the clergy, um, I'm going to say a dozen years ago. And if you speak to clergy members in, in Queens, particularly in South Queens, um, they will tell you that they remember that. But all of that is, has gone by the wayside over the years. And there's basically no interaction between the Queens DA's office and the community in any kind of formal way. But there are a variety of, of organizations. Um, the Rockaway Youth Task Force, um, young people of color in the Rockaways who are doing a tremendous amount of work to uplift their community and very involved in criminal justice um, issues. Uh, organizations that I've funded and work with, United Black Men of Queens, 100 Suits for 100 Men, a wonderful good man, Kevin Livingston, um, who gets suits donated to him and gives it out to young people if they're going out on an, on an interview or, or going for their, their first job. There's an organization that I work with called Art Transforms, where every year we do a social justice art show in my district where so, we have okay, local so artists. Yes. We get it. You're in the district. Got it. So how, what's the structuring look like then? So the structure in the office, you've got to institutionalize community <clears throat> engagement. And it's got to be built around issues, and it has to be built as well around, let's just say, 
demographics. There needs to be an active and regular meeting of an African American Advisory Council, a Jewish Community Advisory Council, an Asian American Community Advisory Council, et cetera, et cetera. Each community has its own needs, its own interests, and they need to be meeting with the office regularly to give their input into what they need the office to do, but also to be made aware of what, um, what is going on with criminal justice systems. But it also needs to be structured around issues as well. I, I think I'm going to do a tremendous amount very quickly, but we're not going to solve everything on day one. And so there needs to be an ongoing engagement with the kind of community organizations that I was talking about that meet on a regular basis in the office to discuss what are we doing to address um, over-policing of communities of color. What are we doing? Look, I work very closely with the pro-choice community and with um, a, uh, a reproductive health clinic um, in Jamaica that is under siege from anti-choice zealots. Okay, so we're, we're veering just a little bit, and so since our time is tick-ticking, I want Tiffany and I want Mina to answer this question, and then Ozzy, I'm going to kick it over to you. Uh, absolutely. So to speak to just some of the community groups that um, we are excited and plan to work with, uh, groups like Vocal Make the Road, Our Children, the Osborne Association. Um, but what we plan to do also is create a community um, steering committee that's representative of a lot of different cross-sections of our community, community-based organizations, um, activists, and um, folks that have been directly impacted by our justice system, um, along with uh, a lot of the national organizations that are the 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 movers on some of this criminal justice reform things. We're already working with folks like Prosecutor Impact, the Innovative Institute for Prosecution, um, the Justice Collaborative. And then in these in this community steering committee, uh, breaking up into working groups so that we're meeting on a monthly basis and uh, have kind of zoned in or keyed in on issues like policy, on issues like community relations, on issues like relations with our police departments and figuring out what best practices and best policies are. So I would definitely create advisory councils with the important major groups, youth groups, Rockaway Youth Task Force comes to mind, elders, LGBTQ groups, um, faith leaders, and immigrant our immigrant communities. And I think we need to cover all of those in terms of having advisory councils so that we can listen to the concerns of the citizens and who are most closest to the problems in their communities and address those problems as the top law enforcement officer and as district attorney. And one of the things that I plan to do to make sure that we have open lines of communication is to make sure that somebody is assigned to each of these council groups, these advisory council groups, in addition to myself, sitting down with them and having regular meetings so that I understand, as district attorney, the actual issues that are going on in the community. And with respect to hiring, we need to make sure that the district attorney's office is reflective of the community that it serves. And right now, it is not. And I've said this time and time again, the executive staff, the senior staff levels, the management in the office needs to be reflective of the communities in Queens that that office serves. And so I plan to hire a very diverse staff, as I did with Ken Thompson in the Brooklyn DA's office, as I did as executive director of the CCRB, and as I did as deputy attorney general with Attorney General Carl Racine. Um, speaking of or organizations, I'm wondering which of you have asked for the endorsement of the Police Benevolent Association? None. I have not. None of us have. None of us have. Yeah. I have not. I, I was the executive director for okay. the Civilian Thank Complaint so, Review so Board. None, so none of you have has. asked for their endorsement or filled out a questionnaire from the group no. seeking their endorsement? I no. believe the only person who did that was Judge Lasak. Well, the only, one, the only person who's copped to it, if you don't mind <laughs> the, the pun, is, is Judge Lasak. 
just wanted to get that out there. Okay, um, I'd, I'd like to just ask a question um, for Ms. Kabon uh, regarding drug-related offenses. Um, can you just describe which drug-related offenses you would prosecute? Uh, I would not prosecute drug possession. Again, we have had the system of punting public health right. issues. I, I, sure. Um, possession is one thing. Mm -hmm. Can you can you outline the the one the drug related cases that, that you? Oh, would absolutely. Uh, trafficking. Um, I I alluded to it before when we talk about um, doctors overprescribing opioids. Um, can you describe what sure. what what counts as overprescribing in that so, case? So, uh, in a, a situation like that. Um, you literally just have a doctor for a fee continuing to write excessive prescriptions for painkillers. Um, are there other drug-related offenses that, that you would look to prosecute that, that are being under-prosecuted currently? Uh, Wide-scale drug trafficking. Where do you see that happening in Queens? So, I, I mean, typically we're seeing it in... Um, when we talk about crack... Uh, opioids, um, marijuana, but we're talking about fo when folks are trafficking large amounts into different areas. And it depends on the drug, right? When we, when we look at uh, issues like crack, we're seeing that more in urban areas, um, er areas with communities of color. When we're seeing the opioid crisis, we're seeing that in areas uh, that are spanning out to more affluent areas, more typically you know, white areas. It really depends on what substance you're looking at uh, and, and the Thank you. Um, a lot of you have, have sort of spoken about the fact that you don't take money from landlords or from the real estate industry. Um, Mr. Yambers, uh, maybe, uh, if I could start with you. Um, what does not taking money from landlords enable you to do as a district attorney? Well, it, it enables me to allow, to, to, to feed into and, and tap into the, the, the concerns and the issues that, that are of great value to the community. Um, I'm not swayed by the corporate interest. I'm not swayed by the lobbyists. You know, the, the only corporations that have contributed to my campaign have been um, criminal defense uh, firms who are incorporated. And as a reality, they're fed up with the aggressive policies of the DA's office because they, it's, it's, it's ironic that they go into any other county in the city of New York and they're, they're receiving better justice, more fairness. But when they come into Queens, it's a, a really low order, hardcore, people have to be incarcerated at every step of the way, um, you know, and, and it it's just has to stop because the system is no longer fair, and the leverage that's being used against them by the DA's office is, is throwing the entire system uh, into a, uh, basically injustice. But, but with respect to, to landlords, is there a specific thing that you see currently happening that you, yeah, think, absolutely. That, that you think the office is not being as aggressive about? Absolutely. We, we, we're not being aggressive about um, the pushing out of individuals through tenant, tenant harassment out of their homes so that individuals can, corporations can take over the, the housing, uh, redevelop it, and then resell it or re-rent uh, the, the, the units at a higher uh, market rate. We're Where not do you doing see that happening? Mostly Astoria. Mostly okay. Long Island City and Astoria where, where they're doing huge amounts of development. Um, and I think that's a problem. I think that's a problem because it's, it's really more than gentrification. It, it, it's it's a, a wholesale uh, dislocation of our community. And what we also have to address mm -hmm. is deep theft. So in communities mm -hmm. like Rosedale, Laurelton, in communities uh, you know, predominantly uh, African-American and Latino descent, they're going after the homes using predatory lending tactics, using... 
um, deep theft right. tactics where they're doing a, a scam, uh, reverse mortgages, and they're specifically targeting people of uh, higher in age, the elderly, because they've paid off the majority of their mortgage and they're getting them into these huge mortgage, um, you know, programs and also uh, basically taking their homes from under their feet. What is the specific like illegal act? If, if somebody signs over into an agreement that may not be favorable to them, it, not, yes. it might not necessarily be illegal. Where where is that it line? Can that, that be, you would find it can be it can be illegal if there are false pretenses, okay. if the individual uses false information to obtain that signature, if the individual that they're dealing with is is um, you know mentally incompetent or uh, needs the services and supervision of a, a of a guardian, a legal guardian, and there, it's no, it, you know the fair dealing it has to be that the individual that they're dealing with has the right information has the the capacity to deal on the same level as the as the as the broker or corporate um, you know representative and, and or mortgage broker um, and if and in many cases it's not in many cases you have a lot of redlining based on false information got it how many attorneys in the office are dealing with that now how many None. would you have dealing with that I think I'll, what, I, what I want to do is have a real estate uh, fraud unit. And I think that's, right now, what they're, they have an economic crimes unit that's, that's focusing on um, welfare fraud and things of that nature, maybe uh, credit card ID theft. But what I want to do is have the real estate finance, um, real estate fraud bureau work on the deed theft, work on tenant harassment, work on these types of crimes that are, that are specifically, um, you know, pushing community residents outside of their home literally outside of their homes and outside of the county. And if, if I could add to Mr. Nevis' sure. answer, I mean, it's not just the process of um, getting that lease signed or, or that deed signed, but what we're seeing are just unlawful criminal acts being taken against tenants um, that can be prosecuted separately. Uh, you know, purposefully... Uh, denying access to, to heat, to hot water, creating unsafe conditions when we're building places, cutting corners and uh, making it unsafe for folks to live, but then also being predatory against immigrant communities and using their vulnerable status against them um, to force them out of their homes. And what we find too is that when sometimes if you have some trouble uh, finding a, a penal law statute that historically you think would, oh, well, they're not assaulting someone, they're not um, doing something that you immediately think of as illegal, I can't tell you how many times I sit in court just bewildered by the new and creative ways that we use our penal laws to weaponize them against our black and brown communities. And what you find in these situations where we're creating unsafe conditions for landlords and tenant, for, for tenants particularly, is that usually you can go back to that paper trail and find that people that are willing to do that kind of harm to human lives are cutting corners in other places. And so you can find ways to prosecute them, um, whether it is um, you know fraud in, the, in their paperwork or their business dealings and being really creative about how you attack them so that ultimately you are still serving the survivors and victims of their particular crimes. And adding to what she just said, you know, the biggest offender in Queens of this ty these types of tactics is NYCHA, is actually the NYCHA public housing. And I want to see more investigations into cover-ups uh, at NYCHA because there are individuals literally taking, you know, information and, and, and falsifying information to cover up lead poisoning, to cover up, you know, problems at NYCHA. And, and, and you know, I think that that type of, you know, city-sponsored criminal activity needs to be rooted out and needs to be prosecuted. That wouldn't step on what the U.S. attorney has already done. 
No, because we're looking at individual actors, not the city. We couldn't, we, could, we couldn't prosecute the city, the municipality, but we can prosecute individuals that we know falsify documents for the purpose of creating better stats so that they can keep their jobs, so that they can get more funding, so that they can you know, continue to control a certain nature development. And th that's what we're talking about. Just like we have cops testifying and, f and, and submitting false statements, uh, false uh, you know, reports, you have government officials at NYCHA doing the same thing just so that they can keep their jobs, just so that they can you know, make, it, make things look better than they really are. With respect to officers who are testifying in, in, in your terms, um, I want to throw a question over to, to Ms. Malik. Um, there have been some calls to defund the vice squad. Um, I'm wondering what is your position on that matter and just more broadly on investigating uh, the, the vice squad in Queens? So one of the things that I plan to do, because police accountability is near and dear to my heart, obviously, for, given my past, and experiences, but um, I plan on having a Civil Rights and Integrity Bureau. And one of the things that the Civil Rights and Integrity Bureau will be to investigate police misconduct. It will report directly to the district attorney so that there isn't any outside influence, and it will look into cases of police misconduct and hold those officers accountable where we need to hold them accountable. There, there was a report, I believe it was from WNYC, about how, how district attorney offices have a list of officers who are not reliable or who have lied on, uh, on the witness stand. Is that a list that you would be willing to make public? Within the bounds of the law, absolutely. And I also advocate for getting rid of 50A, Civil Rights Law Section 50A, which is the confidential, right. confidential statute, confidentiality statute for po police but personnel records, and making sure that police personnel records are open to us as the district attorney's office. Right now, they're not. And as, the, as so, Dep yes. Um, but, but in terms of that list of officers who are not found to be reliable on the witness stand, you would make that public day one in office? If they are found not to be reliable on the witness right. stand based on a judge's fi judicial finding? Yes. Yes. You would. Absolutely, because you know okay. that information I, is not actually covered in the 50A, because okay. a judicial determination of credibility is part of the public record. So if we're gathering information of a list of officers who are being found incredible as a matter of law, I think our obligation is to make that, uh, actually, it legally is our obligation to make that information so you available to defense counsel. But that's, that's yes, not sir. a real answer, respectfully. Yes, okay, there are very, judicial determinations that someone has committed perjury are actually very rare. What these lists are, are judgments in the minds of the prosecutors that this officer is not reliable, that the affidavit that they've sworn or the testimony right. that they've give, given um, simply cannot be relied upon to build an appropriate case. And that list needs to be made public. The public needs to know when public officials cannot perform their public functions reliably. And it gets to another responsibility of the district attorney's office, which I understand very well, and that is the power to shape police policy. You know, there's a reason. But just yeah. just before we get there, I, I just want to see, would you also make that list public? Yes, absolutely. Okay. So I, we'll get to you, but okay. I, I just want to hear the, the rest of this and then sure. we'll go back to you. Good. Right. So a big reason I believe in declining a lot of different kind of prosecutions mm -hmm. is because the police can police only what prosecutors are willing to prosecute, right? When Cy Vance said, we're not going to prosecute fair evasion in Manhattan, fair evasion arrests in Manhattan plummeted. 
right? And so if the district attorneys are holding officers accountable and publicly exposing misconduct, that is going to force the police department to reckon with that problem and change its policies and make the force a better and more honest force. Okay. I, I don't think that the benchmark or the threshold should be a judicial finding, and it, it's because it is so rare. And the reason is, uh, in part because of the actions of our district attorneys. You have situations where district attorneys have the list. They know who's been uh, deemed unreliable in, in their experience. They go forward with those prosecutions. Let a judge set bail that a person can't afford. Let months and months go by getting ready for a trial. And then on the eve of trial they'd let everybody know, actually, this officer's right. not reliable, and then the judge will turn to the district attorney and say, you can't put that officer on the stand because they don't want to make that determination, right? Uh, and so you have to d resolve the case right now, and by then the damage is done. Right. So beyond just releasing that, we also have to make it untenable for bad officers to stay employed and say, if you come to us with a case, we're going to decline to prosecute it. Interesting. Um and just to go back to, to Mr. Neighbors, I think what we're hearing is that they're setting a different standard. Right, you were talking about testifying. Right. So that's a different standard uh, okay. for testifying. Now, for um, determinations by the district attorney, that person is not credible because they filed a false statement or because they're 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 filling out information and and they're you know, you know, bringing in information that they've basically made up. We need to get those uh, officers off the force and, and completely off the force. And we can do that as district attorneys. I've done it as district attorney, uh, where I've notified the DA himself uh, in Keynes County that individuals on the anti-crime team were coming in talking about they, they stopped an individual because of a broken taillight. And then we have uh, the individual coming in the next day with an inspection sticker of their uh, inspection report of their car. Clearly, the, the broken taillight was not defective or the taillight was not defective. So those are all officers that we have to get off the force and we have to prosecute them because when, a, when an officer brings in a, an affidavit saying this is why I, I stopped this person, right. this is why I, I, I did the arrest and it's false, that's a, that's a crime. And we need to hold those individuals accountable because in order for the public to have trust and confidence in our, in our criminal justice system, we have to make sure no one's above the law, no one's below the law. We're all subject to the law. It doesn't matter if you wear a badge or uniform. You have to be uh, you know, held to the same account as everybody else. So as uh, the clock is moving here, I think we'd like to shift to a quick lightning round where Quick. hopefully we can provide <laughs> yes or no answers and uh, at most a sentence if you need to elaborate. So let's start, um, and we'll go around the table, shifting directions each time. Uh, would you maintain the Queen's Office's uh, so-called no plea policy? No. Definitely not. No. No. Okay, so I'll start with you, Councilman, and then we'll loop back around to you, Ms. Caban. Um, so do you support the decriminalization of sex workers? I support not prosecuting individual prostitutes, sex workers. Um, I do not go so far as others to say that we should not prosecute promoters and I'm, we should not prosecute Johns and certainly that we should not prosecute traffickers. I'm open to that conversation, but right now I can only commit to not prosecuting individuals engaged in prostitution or sex work. Okay. I would not prosecute sex workers either, and Councilman Lansman and I are on the same page with respect to prosecuting pimps, johns, and traffickers. I believe that, you know, I will not, I will not prosecute uh, sex workers, but I believe that the focus of the district attorney's office, as I said before, has to be human trafficking. Individuals who are bringing people in against their will and, and, and engaging in sex work. 
I support the full decriminalization of sex work. Uh, it creates and allows for an environment where we can be more efficient and targeted in combating true sex trafficking. So I, I support and stand with um, the decrim New York movement. Uh, anyway, so we'll start with Ms. Malik. Uh, do you support the use of large-scale gang takedowns that rely on conspiracy charges? It depends on what the facts and circumstances of the case are. I think I would have to look at that at, on a case-by-case -case basis. I, I do support that, that prosecution because I've done it in the past, and I feel that it's necessary in order to be able to charge individuals appropriately as kingpins. And individuals, and these are not the individuals that are being recruited, the kids being recruited to, to, to join gangs. These are the individuals who are, the, who are actually gun runners, gun traffickers, and, and drug traffickers who are also kingpins and leaders of the gangs. And that's how we bring them in through the conspiracy charge. Mr. Lanceman. I do not. These uh, widespread conspiracy takedowns are overly broad. I'm proud of the role I play in the council in exposing the holes and flaws in the gang database. And we are criminalizing young people almost exclusively, black and brown young people, for hanging out with their friends in their development. I don't support it. It's yet another dragnet system where we are criminalizing entire communities. Um, in the Bronx, actually, D.A. Gonzalez has, has uh, made some progress on this, where he has also declined to prosecute uh, in a lot of these conspiracy, conspiracy um, cases and has really targeted uh, just specific bad actors to, to bring criminal charges against. Okay, I'll start over here. Is it ever appropriate to try minors charged with violent felonies as an adult? No, I believe that the studies have showed that minors don't really develop their mind and their brain until the age of 25. And to, to charge an individual with a violent crime at a young age is really saying that they've, they're beyond saving. And I don't believe that. I, think, I believe young people should be referred to family court where the services are there to provide for them and to redirect them away from crime. Come on. Keep in mind, this is lightning round, so sure. <laughs> one no, we have to keep, uh, treat children like children and, and invest our resources in um, you know, helping them grow into happy, more holistically healthy folks that are making good decisions. Young people, 16 and 17-year-olds is what we're talking about under the law, should never be prosecuted in adult court, regardless of the offense that they're charged with. Charged with. Not to interrupt, but uh, we just have a late walk-in. We should treat children like children and make sure that they are getting the care and rehabilitation that they need. Great. Thank you. Judge Lasek, thank you for uh, joining Lasek. us. Judge Lasek, thank you, excuse me, for joining us. Uh, do you want to, uh, do you see any circumstances in which 16 or 17-year-olds 17, 17 should be tried as an adult? I think they should be treated as children. Thank you and welcome. Thank you. Um, I'll start with the next question, and Mr. Lasek, uh, we could start with you. Lasek. Lasek, I apologize. Um, Queens had about $113 million in seized assets at, uh, by the end of 2016. I'm wondering, um, what would your approach be to what to do with, that for, with those assets that are forfeitured, and how would you distribute them? Well, I think that money must go back to the community. And I think it could be very helpful to set up programs, diversion programs, programs for the kids. Um, many different things can be set up with that money uh, to help the communities. Would you change any, any way in which they're taken in? Would, would you change any of the policies related to how the 
assets are are obtained. Are obtained? Yes. Such as? Are there any practices by the Queen's District Attorney's forfeiture uh, under the forfeiture policies that you would like to change? Not at this point. So, Judge, when, before you arrived, we asked all of your opponents about whether or not they would seek support from the PBA. All of them said that they did not and would not, and you were the only one uh, in this group that uh, has sought the endorsement of the PBA. So I wanted to ask, one, have you actually sought the endorsement of the PBA? Yes, two, I filled out the questionnaire. Okay. And what is, the, what is the hope of gaining their endorsement? What would you like to do with them in the future, or why was it important for you to seek their endorsement? Well, I've always had a good relationship with the police department and the PBA, and um, I've gotten the endorsement of a number of other law enforcement unions, and I think it would help me. What was on the questionnaire? I don't remember. I've been filling out so many questionnaires. I mean, do they ask sort of about your prosecutorial past or future, or can you just help us? I don't remember a thing about question. it. I filled out so many questionnaires. Okay. Harry, thoughts? So many questionnaires. Sorry, I'm just returning to my, uh, to my list. Um, a question for you. Sure. Uh, You've talked about using Section 195 of the uh, State Penal Code, uh, which is defining misconduct from a public servant as um, an unauthorized exercise of his official function, uh, potentially to arrest ICE officers um, in courthouses. Um, who would be making those arrests? And uh, hypothetically, how would you go about trying to make new case law at the uh, appellate level from those arrests, mm -hmm. as you've said uh, you, know, you might like to do? Yeah, I mean, that's probably one of the uh, most uh, uh, aggressive and um, things that we might try to do. Mm -hmm. When we talk about holding our ICE agents um, accountable, certainly we are going to be looking to charge when we see accounts of ICE officers literally um, using excessive force, um, when they are sexually assaulting folks in their custody. Uh, when we talk about the statute that you're referencing, mm -hmm. I think there's an opportunity not only to kind of push the boundaries and show our immigrant communities that we are there to help you, that part of the reason why we have our, our state and federal systems is to say we have it is incumbent upon us to protect our communities against all bad actors that are harming our communities. Um, so there's a real opportunity here, and there is case precedent for holding federal um, officers accountable in state courts. Is it going to be an uphill battle? Yes. Are we going to experience pushback? Yes. Um, part of the process might also involve trying to get um, silent indictments throughout the process um, and getting you know those kinds of indictments before an arrest is made, for example. Uh, but it's something that we're going to explore, and we're going to uh, bring as many experts together as we can to do whatever we can to combat ICE and what they're doing to our immigrant communities, especially here in Queens. I have a question here about uh, bail reform. Um, the four of you were here when we started all spoke, I believe, favorably about this. Um, Commissioner O'Neill had a piece in the Daily News, I think today, um, both the News and the Post have editorialized warning that New York is one of three states that doesn't allow a judge to consider if a suspect is dangerous in a remanding or setting bail. Um, money now is not supposed to be a consideration either under the, uh, 
under the law. Um, is this a reform in need of some reform or fine tuning, or, or is this right the, the, the way it's set up now? Since we started this campaign, I brought to the attention of everybody that we are one of three states that does not allow a judge when he's Oh, you were laughing. Not, 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 <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, does not allow a judge to uh, take into consideration the dangerousness factor to the community. With all the reform going on, I think that should be added into it. A judge should be allowed. Having sat as a judge for 15 years, I, you know, heard bail applications, you know, hundreds of times. And I think a, a DA should be allowed to make an argument, if he's got factors to support it, that the individual before the judge could pose a danger to the community. And I think that should be legislated into the penal law, the CPL. Would anyone else here press I, I to think reform that's the right. legislation? Yeah, I think that's right. I, I, you know, when, when a process, because the DA's office is the chief law enforcement officer and in charge of public safety, when an individual poses a demonstrated risk to harm or, or, or even death to another person or even a group, we have to take that in consideration and we have to make, make the appropriate recommendations for, if necessary, remand or more intensive supervision. Uh, and, I, and I think that, you know, to, to, to sit here and say, well, we don't want to consider that and we shouldn't consider that is actually contradictory of the purpose of the office, which is public safety. You have an individual that's a demonstrated risk and we have this very much in in domestic violence situations where they have a history of violence and they've committed serious acts against their partner, serious injury, and now we, we, we may have a situation where they're going to come out again and, and actually commit a suicide, or I mean a homicide, and kill their partner. All right. Um, before we move... Uh, so I'm just going to take that as no from everyone else. No, no, not at all. Not at all. I, I had my own op-ed in the Daily News, mm -hmm. um, which criticized the bail reform package done up in Albany because it still in excludes so-called violent offenders from um, the benefits of... of it, it still includes violent offenders as people who, who where cash bail can be set. And the reason that that occurred is because we as a state are unwilling to reckon with the issue of how do we protect um, the public from people who uh, there's a reasonable belief that they are a danger to a particular member of the public or to the public at large. And so we continue to use cash bail as a mechanism for locking people up instead of actually having an honest and open and carefully guided process of determining whether or not someone is dangerous or not. And we use cash bail as a proxy. We put enough cash bail on their head and they get stuck in Rikers Island and that's how we deal with it. And that is part of the reason why, why the reforms that were passed are inadequate and also um, why our, our, our criminal justice system is as dysfunctional as it is because we don't deal with issues that are important head on. I actually practiced in D.C. where they abolished cash bail in 1992, but they do consider two things, dangerousness to the community as well as flight risk. So that is something that's important because we do have violent offenders. Um, but in terms of, you know, considering the considerations that you have, you also have the ability to consider the strength of the people's case, the criminal history of the person being accused of a crime, as well as ties to the community. So I think all the bases are covered, but certainly dangerous to the dangerousness to the community is something that's important. And just to be clear, I, I do support ending cash bail. 
you know, and I will not uh, ask for cash bail as district attorney or have my assistant district attorneys recommend cash bail. But right now, you can't consider dangerousness, right? Say again? Right no. now, by the law, you cannot consider dangerousness. You know, that's right. You can't. No, you can't. But, no, it, but, can't. It, but it is wink, wink, nod, nod. But what, that's why people are sitting in Rikers is, Island on cash bail most of the time. Right? Because practice, the judge feels that they're dangerous to society. They're going to go out and do something bad. They're afraid of being on the front page of the New York Post. And because it's not an open and honest pro process, we have, we have a couple of thousand people sitting on Rikers Island because they can't pay cash bail, where if we had an open and honest evaluation of a person's dangerousness, that number would be reduced to probably like, you know, the low single or, two, two, or double digits. Right now, when, you when cannot in, consider dangerousness to the community under the current law, and under the new reform law that goes into effect on January 1st, 2020, you cannot consider dangerous to the community either. But this is where experience matters, because in practice, in practice, after 18 years of practicing as a prosecutor, you, what you argue is that, one, they have a serious criminal history of violent past, and two, the gravity of the offense. They've committed a violent offense against an individual. They've attempted to murder or harm or, or kill somebody, uh, actually kill an individual, you know, and are charged with murder. That's how you get the point across to the court that this is a threat to, to the public because of the track record they have in the past. They've committed violent crime in the past. And then the, the violent crime that they're before the court today is a demonstration that they're going to continue it. No, I'm sorry. It's too broad. And to get to the professor's point, by using someone's prior criminal history as the main determinant of whether or not they're going to get locked up today, you are guaranteeing that you are going to be over-locking up, over-incarcerating people of color, because it's people of color who've been brought into the criminal justice system in the first place. I do believe in a dangerousness standard, but it has to be very, very narrowly tailored. It has to have vigorous um, um, scrutiny from the court and, and an opportunity to confront witnesses. It cannot merely be, this guy did, was convicted of something serious in the past, he's charged with something serious today, lock him up. That is overbroad. And, and, and just to add to that conversation, when we talk about having open and, and honest conversations about dangerousness and who it typically affects, I've literally re represented clients that um, as part of the prosecutor's bail application, they tried to say, because it's the, it's the unsaid thing that dangerousness is being considered, but then we'll put things on the record like, um, you know, and bail should be set because this defendant here um, was uh, shot in the projects on the state. And basically the only thing to be taken from that conversation is, well, if you are a black man from the projects who got shot, you must be in a gang, therefore you're dangerous. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, let's set some really serious bail here. And that's problematical also, See, that's Again, in and of that's, itself. That's really absurd and I'm surprised to hear that uh, because in my practice and from what I'm familiar with in the practice, at least in other jurisdictions, is that we demonstrate risk to the community by the criminal history, such as an individual has shot three times before has been convicted of attempted murder and they're now you know being you know charged with murder clearly the individual has demonstrated a risk to, 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 to people in the community and for the non-prosecutors in the room to say well that's not really a gauge that you should look at is not being practical and I think that's where experience matters because when you have violent people and especially individuals in domestic violence situations where they're repeatedly um, you know focusing and targeting individuals in their own family and then next thing you know there's a homicide that results because the, you know, the DA's office didn't take the, the, the situation or the police department didn't take the situation seriously, didn't see the threat to, to, to the individual's family members. I think what the non-prosecutors in the room are trying to tell you, and I apologize if I'm, if I'm purporting to speak for you, Ms. Caban, is that the criminal justice system that you built 
and that is the experience that you're relying upon, is the one that we're trying to tear down. We're trying to do something different. And, and the model that you're suggesting is the one that got us to this point. And I, speaking for myself, would not rely solely on a person's prior criminal history to determine what is going to happen to them in the case that's in front of me. Because the prior criminal justice system, which our prosecutors have built, is racist and discriminates against poor people. Right. Having sat as a Supreme Court judge, I'm allowed to consider three things. One, the severity of the offense, like a murder case as opposed to a, a petty larceny case. Number two, the criminal history of the person before me, whether it's first arrest, whether he's a predicate felon, whether he's a persistent violent felon, these are all factors. The third one is the flight risk. What are his or her ties to the community? And whether or not he or she has a history of not appearing in court, having a history of bench warrants. All it is wink, wink, nod, nod I'm hearing. I never saw a wink or a nod 15 years on a bench, 25 years in the DA's office, okay? So, okay, you want to, I think we're at the end of our time and we really want to respect the fact that you all have given us a solid hour and we so appreciate it. But Thank you all. Thank you so much. But before we let you go. Thank you. But before we let you go, in a race that is essentially become defined by reform, what distinguishes briefly, for those of you, for each of you, what distinguishes you as the right person for this job in this moment? I'll start to my left. Sure. Uh, in this moment, in a field of career politicians and career prosecutors who have built, thrived, fed into our system of mass incarceration, I am the only public defender in the race. When we talk about the progressive prosecutor, the new way of doing things, it's literally the things that public defenders have always known, the things that we fought for on the front lines in court every day and up in Albany for decades. What I see in the field are these opportunities to either maintain the status quo or for incremental change, and what we need is bold, transformative change. What I represent is a, a clear cut and distance from the status quo. I'm the only person uh, who has fought on the front lines in court my entire career on the right side of the aisle. So why do you think that people have mis misunderstood you and also your campaign at this point? Um, I, and I don't know that I don't know so much that I've been misunderstood. If you want to elaborate on on, on mm. what you feel has been misunderstood, do you want to elaborate? I mean, it, it, there have been some questions about skill set. Um, there have been some questions about sort of um, I don't know people. Oh sure, you know. So you know, I, I think placement it's, of this yeah. particular job in this particular. I think it's time. the right kind of experience. When we talk about my experience in representing over a thousand clients in charges ranging from turnstile jumps to homicides, when we talk about the ability to, you know, recognizing walking into an office with a budget of over sixty million dollars, with over a hundred million dollars of forfeit asset um, asset uh, funds, with over five hundred employees, it's about having a clear vision, having the ability to build a coalition, and you know this campaign, the fact that I am sitting here in this room with y'all is proof of my ability to do those things. This started with three women sitting around a breakfast table and has grown into a campaign of a full staff and hundreds of, of people involved on a shoestring budget where we have not only kind of shaped the, the conversation, uh, but taken over a lot of the conversation and built a coalition of partners that is so formidable from our community-based organizations to community activists, um, 
all the way up to uh, legislators. <laughs> all the way up Brad to legislators. Sorry. So, yeah. That's so, your time. you know, I, I, I think, um, you know, we're exactly where we need to be. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Councilman, briefly, uh, if we can try yes, a closing sure. statement Look, as it, to it, why it, at this point in time you are the right man for this job. Thank you. Look, each of the other candidates can point to things in their background which suggest that if they're elected district attorney, they will implement this reform or that kind of reform, and to varying degrees of, of sincerity. I'm the only candidate in the race who has actually implemented and affected these reforms. We're talking about over-policing and mass incarceration. In the council, we have saved hundreds of thousands of people from the criminal justice system by taking low-level offenses out of the criminal justice system. We have saved thousands of people from being on Rikers Island because they can't afford cash bail by setting up a New York a City bail fund and expanding supervised relief. We release. Um, we've expanded. Uh, uh, drug treatment, drug court, uh, mental health court, veterans court, human trafficking court funding, funding so we can actually um, uh, uh, reduce the, the amount that we criminalize mental illness, addiction, and poverty. We funded and established a conviction integrity review unit in Staten Island. Queens is the only borough that doesn't have one. So for me, you don't need to look in my background and think, well, if he did this, he'll probably do that. The criminal justice reforms that we are talking about here today and talking about in this campaign, I'm the only one who's actually made them happen. Put that on top of my 11 years of experience as a public official in the assembly and the council, my 19 years of practice as a, uh, as a civil rights lawyer representing people who've been discriminated against or sexually harassed in the workplace. That is the right experience, the right background, the right vision, the right record for this office, you know that if you elect me, you know exactly what I'm going to do, not because of other things in my past that suggest I'll do it. I've done it. Thank you. Judge? Right, the DA is the chief law enforcement official of the county. I have a record of 25 years in the DA's office at the highest level, and while I was there, uh, not only did I prosecute some of the worst uh, cases, I also at the same time I had a good relationship with the police department, but back in the 80s when they were using a stun gun to torture prisoners, I led the investigation that led to the indictment of five police officers, including a police lieutenant and a sergeant. Back then, that was not very popular, but we did what we had to do. And that's what reform is. Reform is doing things that may not be popular, but they have to be done. The system has to be reformed now. As well, in the 90s, I started getting calls from prisoners, letters from prisoners, calls from lawyers, <coughs> saying they were innocent. And I entertained every one of them, and I was able to exonerate over 20 men of color that were wrongfully arrested, indicted, or convicted of crimes they did not commit. That was not a popular position to take in the DA's office in the system at that point, because you're going against the grain right. on everything. And as a judge, I sat in the homicide part. I left as the deputy administrative judge. I presided over mostly murder cases during my tenure there. And um, that, experience, that experience distances me from the other candidates here. I was both a DA and a Supreme Court judge. And that experience, I think, will allow me to walk in there day one. I know it will. Unlike anyone else, I could walk in there day one because I ran a division that had over 100 people at one point. 
Okay. Okay. Um, all righty. Ms. Malik? Yes, so I bring to this table the lens of having the lived experience of growing up in Queens, the criminal justice experience of over 20 years in the criminal justice space, and also the criminal justice reform experience. That's what no other candidate at this table has right now, is the criminal justice reform experience that needs to be brought to the Queens DA's office. In terms of my lived experience, I'm the only candidate here who's an immigrant and who grew up in Queens I'm a woman of color, I raised two black sons in Queens, and so I understand that experience, it's native to me. In terms of my criminal justice experience, I've worked on both the defense side and the prosecution side. I've covered both bases. So I understand what it means to serve a client, an indigent client, as well as what it means to serve a victim in terms of a criminal case. I've not only worked alongside police officers, I've also held them accountable as the executive director of the Civilian Complaint Review Board, which was an organization of 200 employees. I've worked with Ken Thompson on the Conviction Review Unit, which has exonerated 26 people to date. I haven't just funded a Conviction Review Unit, I actually helped build one. And built a restorative justice initiative with Attorney General Carl Racine, anti-truancy initiatives to break the school-to-prison pipeline, implemented mental health court as well as drug court, and expanded and built a, helped build a hope court for young human trafficking victims. So I've done all of these things already. We need to look at the resume. This is too important of a job to give to somebody who's going to learn as they go. I'm not going to learn as I go because I've already done it and the proof is in the pudding. You know, the difference between me and the other candidates here is that I have the live experience because I come from a community of color, because I've been racially, myself personally racially profiled by the police. As a young man, you know, I've been stopped by the police and, and was so frustrated that I became an attorney. I became an attorney because I wanted to change the system from within, because I wanted to see the change that I wanted to, to affect my family, to affect my community. And that's what is different about me. You know, you know other people had hearings and, and read about books and heard from other people of how discriminatory the, the criminal justice system is, but I have a first-hand knowledge of the discrimination in a, in a criminal justice system, and that's what motivated me to seek out and change it. And secondly, I'm the only person in this race who has actually prosecu prosecuted the first homicide case against a police officer who killed an unarmed man in front of his family. Uh, under the special prosecutor executive order and Governor Cuomo. And that was my job. My job was to hold the police, to hold the law enforcement accountable for killing unarmed civilians. And before that, I was holding correction officers accountable for excessive force against those incarcerated at Rikers Island. So in the last six years of my career as a prosecutor, I've been holding the system accountable and making sure that we have a fair system for everybody and it doesn't matter who you are, whether you wear a uniform or hold a badge, that you are held accountable just like everybody else. And the third thing that really makes me different from everybody else is I have the experience, not in the Queens District Attorney's Office, where the policies were aggressive for, for decades, but at Progressive District Attorney's Office, like the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office, the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Northern District of New York, and the New York State Attorney General's Office. These were all progressive prosecutorial offices that did it right, that had open file discovery, that didn't play with the ready rule, that was promoting diversity within the, the, the prosecutorial ranks and this is the experience that I bring to the DA's office to the DA's office as the as the top job and uh, I guess we want to hear from Melinda Katz oh wait she did not join us okay so Harry <laughs> <laughs> uh, no closing <laughs> statement from her Harry how about you close this out 
No, the uh, the last word should belong to the uh, candidates. Uh, thank you all so much for, for joining us and going through thank some you. of this. I'm glad we got livelier as a uh, insert as applause. Uh, <laughs> thank you. And now for a little postmortem with David Brand. Uh, so what stood out to me was no one really answered Professor Greer's question about what they would do to stop over-policing in black communities specifically, and everyone fell back on their kind of uh, well-worn responses about how they would increase office diversity and ensure that the DA's office is more reflective of the borough of Queens without actually answering that question. Um, another thing that I would like to hear is uh, I think Judge Lasak was the only person who was asked this question, what they would do with seized assets. In 2016, there was $113 million in seized assets uh, in the Queens DA's office. And also, what, how would they change how the Queens DA's office goes about seizing assets, and under what circumstances would they even do that? I think the question on gang takedowns was interesting. Some people kind of equivocated and said it depends on the facts, and those kind of large-scale gang takedowns that can grab dozens of people and add them to that shady gang database. A lot of people see that as a problem if people are going to say they're criminal justice reformers. What did you think about the judge's response about the PBA questionnaire? Uh, Since he was the only candidate (laughs) who attended who had filled it out. Yeah, I don't really buy that. He doesn't remember what was on that questionnaire. And there have been several questionnaires, but that would be one that I think would stick out when you compare it to a lot of questionnaires that are more about justice reform, that being one of the few that is probably... Uh, more geared toward upholding the status quo and uh, being more supportive of policing as it is now. So would like to would like to press him a little bit more on that and find well, out exactly what he said. A candidate could, if they wanted, just uh, just if they don't remember, go back and publish their answers. Yeah, no we problem. Could, we could follow up and ask. Uh, four of the candidates said that they didn't submit those questionnaires and are not seeking the PBA endorsement. Lanceman said Lasak was the only one who, quote, copped to it. And I think they're suggesting that at least one of the candidates who wasn't here, Melinda Katz or Betty Lugo, did submit that questionnaire. And so would be would love to see those questionnaires from all of the candidates who did submit them. Haven't been able to get those. The PBA said that they won't release those. But a candidate, as you said, could certainly release those questionnaires themselves. So we've been very good and non-political today. But the political narrative has been, and there's not a ton of polling, there's some fundraising information that uh, Melinda Katz is the frontrunner, and that Tiffany Kaman has been gaining, as she's caught a, a lot of support, including now uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Is that right? What should we be looking for just as this primary that functionally is the decision approaches? I think it would be interesting to see when there's another filing deadline coming up right before the election, which I think that there is couple days before. If AOC has been sending out emails on behalf of Caban to her massive email list saying, first it was $3 donations, they just sent another one that was even larger donations to see if that really has an impact and if they are able to reach more communities. Because right now the common wisdom is that Caban is doing very well in Western Queens. And so in that perspective, an AOC, just the endorsement, I wonder how many more votes that would actually get her, but if an AOC-backed fundraising campaign could get her a lot of money and enable them to reach more into communities such as Southeast Queens and even Jackson Heights, uh, Corona areas in North Central Queens. What did you think about Caban's answers to some of the questions, say, about uh, drug 
policy and policing, I believe it was. I think she struggled with that answer for sure. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, yeah, I think she struggled with that answer. Yeah. And I think that she would probably want to do over on that one. Right. I, I think I, w I would say, and I wanted to say this after speaking with Emma the other day, is just that I think there's not too much daylight between their policy positions um, among several of the candidates, including Caban, Lanceman, Nieves, who position themselves as the most reform-minded. And then I think the difference comes down to their background and their backstory and, you know, I guess a, a lifelong commitment to justice, which I guess to different extents they have. But there is something to be said about representation and about commitment to being a public defender. I guess for Caban, a commitment to seeking these reforms and trying to hold DAs accountable for Lanceman and then as the chair of the Committee on the Justice System and being willing to face them and ask difficult questions. And for Nieves, being within the DA's office and then also in the Attorney General's office and uh, prosecuting cops. So they do have those bona fides and then I guess it's up to the voters to decide what is the background they identify with and is the most progressive because I think they're I think substantially not that much difference but then the difference is those backgrounds you're putting twenty dollars down right now even money on a candidate to win who would you put it on that's a tough question put me on the spot I mean I do I still do think that Katz has a lot of the institutional support uh, and she has more $20, and it's coming in $1,000 bundles. Yeah, and it is, and it's coming <laughs> from Rebney, and it's coming from a lot of real estate developers. Uh, Which is nice, but she's still the borough president otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard for me to not think that she's still the front runner, but I think the field is narrowing. I think Lanceman has a lot of money. LASIK has a lot of money and a lot of appeal, and you see that appeal uh, in, in his very donations. And I think Caban is obviously still surging, so... I think at this point, a month out, still cats, but there are people gaining ground for sure. So do you not see a path for Nieves or Malik? Malik's another one. So sometimes I think I forget about her, but she, is, she has raised a lot of money. I think it's definitely more of a challenge because I think Southeast Queens, which would be more of a natural fit for her, especially the Southeast Asian community, a lot of them have already started rallying around cats recently, and a lot of Southeast Asian leaders have been rallying around cats. Uh, I think it's going to be harder for her. Nieves, I don't see a path for Lugo, I don't see a path for. And what, one thing I'd be interested in is if Nieves would team up with one of the candidates. If someone like Caban were to win, or Katz, or Lanceman, Nieves, who has a background in, as a prosecutor, who has pretty progressive-minded ideas, if he would be brought in as kind of a top official. Last question. David, thank you so much for uh, coming in thank you and for taking having the this time. Awesome. Alex, thank you for not crossing the table and assaulting me. As, uh, as, as I asked last, last question. So we don't even need to record this, but like, is this, is this really the death of the uh, Queen's machine if there is an upset? Uh, Crowley endorsed Katz not showing up here, and it's not a surprise this time the same way. And yeah, I mean, they still, they, I think they would still have power in pockets for sure, but I think uh, it'd be time for like a real post-mortem for them to uh, determine how they can change and how they can actually adapt to the borough, and really recognize that the old way of doing things isn't working for them. Last question. Real last question. That was the real last question. That was the trick last question phrase. Uh, really, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, David. You're doing really great work for a really, really important job. Thank and you. Um, Eagle? QueensEagle.com, a daily newspaper, a daily print paper here in Queens, focused on criminal justice, justice reform, 
Queens politics and uh, Queens community issues. So thank you guys for having me. Don't worry, we're going to plug it all. <laughs> Please do. F-A-Q. FAQ NYC and Racket Media are brought to you by a grant from Civil, Civil, a blockchain company reinventing the economics of journalism. We are proud to introduce Racket Media into the barren and unsaturated digital media marketplace. This new media company will be a paragon of intellectual literary excellence and possibly zines. Possibly zines. Zines. FAQ is headquartered at the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research. Today's episode was recorded at VFW Post 2348 in Astoria. And special thanks to our guests, Tiffany Caban, Rory Lansman, Mina Malik, Jose Nieves, and Judge Greg Lasak. A very special thanks to David Brand of the Queen's Daily Eagle. And of course, Dave Colon for coming to hang. This episode was co-produced and reported on by Emma Whitford. Edited, sound design, mixed and mastered by Adam Kamara. And as usual, I'm me. Good night, everybody. And vote on June 25th, but only, you know, if you live in Queens. <laughs>